if you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this episode, we'll be looking at unlocking the customer value chain. Among the topics we'll discuss are why companies need to be thinking more about business model innovation than technology innovation, why they should focus far less on the competition and far more on their customers, and what we really mean when we talk about the concept of digital disruption. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Dr. Talas Teixeira, Talas is a professor at the Harvard Business School and HBS's marketing unit. He holds a PhD in marketing from the University of Michigan, and he researches digital disruption and the economics of attention. He's the author of the soon-to-be-published book, Unlocking the Customer Value Chain, which focuses on decoupling disruption and innovation, helping readers uncover the true drivers of change in business today. And it's not technology, as we're so often led to believe. Welcome to the podcast, Talas. Thank you very much, Will. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So let me kick things off today asking you to give a, a quick definition. When we talk about the concept of digital disruption, what does that mean to you? So digital disruption is the process by which an incumbent, a large established company, loses a significant amount of market share in a relatively short period of time. And generally, those who uh, steal this market share are so-called digital startups. Just to give you a few examples, in the span of about four years, Dollar Shave Club uh, stole about 51% of the online razor sales to Gillette. Uh, and that was in a period of just four years, from 2011 to 2015. And Gillette's market share uh, at the time was 21%. So that can clearly see a significant amount of, of market share lost in a relatively short period of time. In another country in Sweden, uh, this uh, a startup called Klarna, it, uh, in less than a decade, it had 40% of the online payments market in Sweden. So it became the biggest startup there in this industry. And it stole all of this market share from banks, telecom companies, payment companies. All of these are two examples of digital disruption. Okay, great. And let me ask about the research that laid the foundation for the book. You spent eight years talking to executives at large tech companies like Google, Facebook, and Airbnb, also at smaller startups like Birchbox, Rebag, and Enjoy, and large incumbents like Coca-Cola, Disney, and Walmart. What did you find were common issues that all of these companies faced? You know, I looked at many different industries. I looked at retailing, I looked at telecom, I looked at consumer products, I looked at services, I looked at media, I looked at uh, industrials. And uh, the, the biggest uh, shocking revelation was this common pattern, this common underlying pattern across all these industries in which uh, small startups were quickly stealing sizable market share from incumbents. And, uh, and so... Uh, what I saw was the rise of competition in all these industries. Startups appear, tech companies grow, and the incumbents are still there. So now you have much more competition. In, in that process, what started to uh, reveal itself to me is the rise of customer power. 
obviously, if you have more startups and more businesses selling to you the similar products and services that you are interested in buying, now you have more power to decide. And so the balance of power started going from companies towards customers. And so if we want to unlock the customer value chain, or CVC for short, it's important to first understand what exactly it is. So what are we talking about when we talk about the customer value chain? So the idea behind a customer value chain is uh, when uh, consumers have to procure products and services, they go through a series of steps in order to achieve this goal. So if I want to buy a refrigerator, I have to go to visit a store, for example, Best Buy. I have to evaluate the brands and the options. I have to compare um, all of the prices and all the features. I have to choose a refrigerator. I have to pay for it. I have to receive it. I use it. And a few years later, I have to dispose of it. All of these are activities in the customer value chain. And the reason I call it the value chain is because all these activities can be classified into one of three different types of activities that provide values to customers. It could be value-creating activities, such as receiving a refrigerator or using a refrigerator or comparing options of refrigerator. They could be uh, value-capturing activities, and in this case, the way that the electronic retailer makes money is by uh, uh, having me pay for it. And so that's a value capture activity from the point of view of the retailer. And they could be value eroding activities. So for example, visiting the store does not benefit me as a consumer, doesn't create value for me, and it doesn't create value for the retailer in and of itself if I don't buy. The same thing disposing the refrigerator. I don't benefit in that activity. So all these activities across Anything that you and I buy or companies buy or the government buy as a customer, they can be classified into value creating, value capture, and value eroding activities. And that is the customer value chain. And so if companies want to remain competitive amidst all the challengers they'll face, they don't need to just excel at innovating at the product or service level. They need to succeed at business model innovation. What does that mean? And can you share an example or two from the book of companies that truly excel at business model innovation? Sure. So business model is basically the idea of understanding how a company creates value and for whom it creates value. And how does this company capture value and from whom does it capture value? So a few examples that I find fascinating still at the day, uh, at today's date that is very old and, and not very sort of technologically savvy is Costco. Costco basically uh, uh, sells you uh, products in bulk and you have to get a membership to do that. So it, it creates value for shoppers and for subscribers and it captures value in the form of selling products through a markup or margins on the goods that they sell as well as subscription fees. Now, so these are two forms to make money. Now, if you look at Costco, how much of their income, their net income does Costco make? The amount of money that they make from subscriptions of shoppers is about 109% of all of its income, which doesn't make sense. So how can that be? Well, basically, Costco loses money of selling products. So it has margins that don't cover its cost, but it makes up for all of this in the form of subscription. So that's a business model innovation relative to traditional supermarkets. 
another example in Europe is Ryanair. Ryanair is basically an airline. So it sell, it makes money by uh, charging uh, flyers for flight tickets. But uh, most of the money that Ryanair makes is actually selling products while you're in the airplane. So it acts as a retailer in the skies. It tells you all sorts of things. If you want food, if you want entertainment, if you want Wi-Fi, if you want uh, uh, to, to transfer currency, if you want parking, all of these things before the plane uh, 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 arrives at your destination, people are paying for virtually anything, and that's how Ryanair makes money. Now, my book has this new type of business model innovation that's called decoupling. And the idea behind decoupling is that if you think about the customer value chain of uh, visiting a store, evaluating, comparing, choosing, paying, receiving, as I said before, there are startups out there that are looking at this value chain in their industry. They're mapping out all the activities that consumers go through, and they're choosing to fulfill one and only one or very few activities. So, for example, if you are Sephora, you have to do all those activities that I previously mentioned to sell uh, women beauty and makeup. But comes a startup called Birchbox, and they decide to not sell you full-size beauty products. They only offer you samples of beauty products, so little uh, uh, samples of uh, facial cream and perfume and, and other products, and they'll offer you at your house. So you buy a subscription for $10 and you receive a bunch of samples, and that allows you to more conveniently evaluate the new beauty products that are available. And once you decide what you like, you can go to Sephora and buy it. So Birchbox decouples the activity of sampling beauty products from actually buying the full-size items. Uh, another example is Trove. Trove is like, essentially it's an app that you can turn on and off insurance for uh, the possessions, you know, electronics and things that you have of value. And basically you just swipe to the left and swipe to the right to turn on and off insurance as you deem fit. So if you're gonna go to Brazil and you, you're afraid that you're gonna, you know, your camera's gonna be stolen, very expensive, you can turn on when you board the plane and when you come back, you can turn it off automatically. So Trove gives you the option of giving you insurance for on-demand for short periods of time, but it doesn't necessarily do all of the back work of having all of the, the uh, reinsurance and all of the policies and so on and so forth. So these are examples of startups that are decoupling the customer value chain. And we tend to instinctively think of companies like Amazon and Uber as quote-unquote technology companies. And for good reason, sometimes Amazon pushes code to production every second. And of course, Uber comes to us in the form of an ever-improving app powered by an algorithm that connects you to the closest drivers as they speed around you via GPS. But you think that considering their advantage strictly based on technology prowess isn't the right way to look at it. Why is that? So, so that, it required me trying to understand how tech companies like Amazon and Google and Uber and Airbnb and Etsy, how did they acquire their first few customers? How did they start off the process of disrupting the markets? And when I looked very early on in their days, what I identified is that they they had basically similar technologies that other competitors. So Amazon was a e-commerce for books. It didn't have any major technological advantage versus other similar competitors. It had a website that was very simple and standard. The same thing with Uber. Uber didn't have the technologies that Uber has today that, that it's known for. 
basically what Uber had, if at all of any innovative, is basically an ability for uh, uh, for a GPS device to be linked in real time to uh, an app. But everything else, you know, in the beginning, you would not just press a button and an Uber car would come to you. It wasn't that on demand. You would actually send a text message or a phone call using your phone, and there would be a dispatcher, somebody that worked for Uber on the other side that would try to get a car for you and send the car. The only innovation in technology, if you will, was the fact that you could see in a map a little car coming closer and closer to you. So you had the peace of mind. The point being is that technology isn't what started these businesses and and drove early growth. This came later, and that's what I've identified with a variety of other businesses. Airbnb didn't have huge technological innovation. Uh, Uber didn't have it. Amazon didn't have it. There was something else that was really driving their early growth. Yeah, and I love the story that you shared about, I think it was Airbnb Australia in kind of the early days of getting it off the ground. What was kind of the A-B test that they ran of the, I, I guess, the, the technology side of onboarding new users and then the the kind of in, in real life version of onboarding new users, if I'm getting that right? Sure. So as it was actually when Airbnb went to France, they decided to compare using digital marketing, for example, Facebook ads with just, you know, setting up a little tent in uh, well-known places and, and, and creating, you know, real events and talking to people about the opportunity of uh, um, renting their houses to, to other people. And what they found is that uh, the low-tech version of it, which is just, you know, the, the offline Meeting, meeting people in events and talking to them was much more cost-effective than doing digital marketing using Facebook ads. So this A-B test showed them to really uh, invest much more in offline activities. Yeah. So for many companies that are looking to define or refine their business models, they'll go with an obvious route. Evaluate what the competition is doing and come up with strategies that will somehow give them a leg up, be it on price, speed, occupying white space, or another approach. What those companies should be doing, though, is forming a deeper understanding of their customers, you believe. Why do most companies get this reversed? So, you know, I had that question in my mind for a long time. It, it, it was so important, the role of the customer, uh, because what I started to uncover is that it's not technology that disrupts most markets. Customers are disrupting markets. Customers are the ones that arrive in an airport and decide to pull out their phone and call an Uber instead of going for a taxi. Customers decide to rent somebody else's place that they don't know, never talked to before on Airbnb instead of using a hotel. So customers were becoming more and more important in the process of disruption. Why, to your question, why do companies still focus on competitors? And after talking with so many executives and understanding how their jobs, their day-to-day jobs are, it became, uh, uh, it revealed itself to me that competitors are easy to be tracked. They're easy to be compared, to be copied, and to fight back. So this idea of business as warfare, business as there's competitors and I have to fight back and I have to gain at their expense. When you have this mindset, which I think is quite toxic in in the business environment, you become solely focused on competitors, what they are doing. And by the way, once you do that, you can go to the board or to your bosses and saying, 
our competitors are doing this, let's fight back, let's do that, let's compare, let's do this thing better. And that was the day-to-day activity. On the other side, consumers and customers are much harder to cater to. There's very few competitors. There's millions of customers. Competitors, you see their actions because they're in the media and, and it's it's not hard to identify what they're doing. Consumers, much harder. There's no you know media channel that going that's going to each individual customer's household and 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 learning from them. So uh, uh, it's much harder to cater to your customers. It's much easier to compare and fight back and react to your competitors. And uh, as a consequence, uh, businesses have been too focused on competitors and not focused enough on their customers. Mind you, everybody that I've talked to before, when I asked how focused are you and your customers, they say, oh, customers are the most important for us. Well, in reality, what happens is executives are obsessed with competitors. There's a section in the book titled Engineering Decoupling in which you go into the three layers of innovation an entrepreneur or executive should familiarize themselves with to learn the art of decoupling. Can you share what those three layers are and why they're so important? So the three layers of engineering decoupling, or it can be applied to engineering any new and innovative business model are, first, if you want to disrupt a certain market, first, you need to deeply understand the established, the traditional business models in those markets. So if we're looking in retailing, the traditional business model in retailing, the supermarkets use and many other retailers is, You buy products, you put a markup, and you sell to shoppers at a higher price. That's the basis of it. That's the basis of making money. And there's a variety of other issues, but that's the most important. And if you want to innovate, you need to start with that as the first building block. And when I talk to my students of creating new innovative business models, I say, instead of you coming up with this new and miraculous business model or idea for a startup, Just start with the traditional business model and layer on top of that, what would a digital version look like? If you just ported this model online, what would it look like? In the case of retailing, it would be very simple. You would sell products and services online uh, as an e-commerce business and then understand the benefits and downsides of that layer of innovation. Obviously, it becomes more convenient, but you lose the opportunity for consumers to feel and touch products. So innovation always has upsides and downsides. In the second layer of digital uh, uh, innovation, then I tell my students, okay, now that you understand that, the third layer of innovation is what you put on top that might be technological and a business model innovation or some other innovation to benefit from the benefits that you've gotten before in the digital version, but mitigate the downsides. So for example, decoupling would be a way a business model innovation as this third layer to add on top. Why do I advocate for this? Because when you build something first on on top of the traditional business, you really get to understand why the world is the way it is, and you have a solid foundation for creating something better, right? And the second and third layer allows you to build and build on top, and that creates this methodological approach that enables you to be much more precise and much more successful over time. The alternative to that is what I've observed so many times that it is a very hit or miss business, which is 
entrepreneurs that just come up with an idea and they say, this is my innovation. And they just, what I call plopping it. They plop it on the table and say, Professor Teixeira, can you evaluate? Will this succeed? And I have no way of doing that because I don't know how it was built. So building business model innovation in layers is much more uh, solid approach, methodological, it's sound, and it increases your chance of success. And by the way, if you fail, it will help you identify what part of the problem is not good versus it. all of the business model is bad. Yeah, I love the, the anecdote in the book about how uh, the wildly popular, I, I think it's a video game streaming service, Twitch came to be. Uh, and it started essentially as a live streaming service called Justin.tv back in 2008, right? And That's right. Uh, uh, and, and you could see they were just, they, they were uh, undergrad students fresh out of Yale. They just wanted to create something new. They put technology on top of it. They put it or they got some money. They kept adding, kept adding without sort of a, a North Star, without a guidance. They thought it would be interesting they couldn't get consumers to stick with it. They couldn't get pay, paying customers on it. And then they started asking the question, okay, so if if Twitch, uh, Justin TV at the time, if this disappeared, who would be most upset? And when they looked at it, it was that segment of consumers that were using Twitch to both broadcast and to see each other playing video games. And they said, well, what if we just did a online on-demand website that streams video game footage for others to see and talk about it. And that's what Twitch became. Less than a few years later, with the two or three years later, this business has grown so dramatically that it was the fourth biggest uh, consumer of broadband internet in the US. And Amazon looked at it, its growth, and decided to pay these kids $970 million to buy the company. Yeah, I love the the story in the book. Uh, one of the founders was at a, I think, at a wedding, waiting for waiting for the wedding or something, and looked at his bank account and saw that it, there was some innovation in his uh, in his bank account. He did not know that there could be that many zeros in a checking account. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so you don't just cover how to improve at decoupling in the book. You also lay out a roadmap for how to respond and how to know whether or not to respond to decoupling. So for companies that are incumbents and are looking to stave off competitors that would break their customer value chain, what are the two potential tools they have at their disposal to respond? So if we go back to the idea of decoupling, once you really understand the core of the idea, which is startups are looking at the customer value chain, they're breaking apart the pieces, the activities, and they're stealing one or a few of them from the established the incumbents, right? So in the in the printer industry, it's very simple, the customer value chain, basically how printers work. They'll sell you a printer, generally subsidized. So Lexmark or HP sells you a printer and you buy it very cheaply. And then you buy for them from them ink, which is very expensive. And that's where they make most of their money. So this is a coupled uh, a business model in which they lose or they don't make much money in the printer and they make up for it in the printer cartridges in the. So what happened is uh, a few years ago, quite a few, you know, few uh, small businesses started to buying these or finding these uh, cartridges and filling them with ink and, and selling them. And so that was really decoupling their business model. What happened is uh, Lexmark learned about this and decided to sue 
one of the biggest uh, businesses out there there that were refilling their ink cartridges and selling it for 50% cheaper. How did they try to, to do that? They, they, you know, threatened legal action. Then they took them to court. They lost. Uh, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. They lost it. And, 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 and now uh, you are allowed as a consumer to not have to buy cartridges from the manufacturer of the printing cartridge. But what Lexmark tried to do is recouple these activities. And that's one of the avenues of responding. And basically, it is the avenue that I see most often and, and first used by established companies that have been decoupled. They try to, a startup comes in and breaks their business model. What do you do? Try to fix it and glue it back. Gluing it is what I call recoupling. Uh, there's a, a, a very interesting case of uh, uh, retailers in Australia that they were seeing people go to the store, look at products, and then buy it online for Amazon, cheaper, because they would just pull out their phone, what we call showrooming, and look at it and buy it online. And so this uh, a retailer called Celic Supplies decided to put right in front of the door of the, the store a sign that says, if you come in, and you shop around, but you don't buy anything, we're going to charge you $5 just for locking fee. That is a type of recoupling. They were trying to make sure that you as a consumer could not just look around and evaluate the products and not buy because their business depended on you doing both. That's the way they made money. And uh, unfortunately, this didn't work out and the company went out of business. Obviously, many people did not want to go inside a store. But that was recoupling. The other alternative is what I call rebalancing. And uh, basically, if you don't try to glue back your business model, you just separate the business model and learn to coexist with these digital disruptors by making sure you create value and you capture value in every portion of your business model. A case, uh, an example of that was Telefonica, which is a, uh, uh, a telecom operator in Europe and South America. Basically, they were seeing that uh, WhatsApp and all of these uh, over-the-top over uh, apps that allowed you co to communicate, people were buying phones and uh, using WhatsApp and not paying the telecom company for the communication that was done over Wi-Fi. And so what Telefonica decided to do is they needed to make money every time they connected an individual to the network. Because before, they wouldn't make money there, but they won't only make money when you actually use your telephone to talk. So that's rebalance. Okay, got it. One of the things I love about the book, Talos, is that there are tons of great case studies and anecdotes that you share throughout it. We've covered many of them here. One that we have not gotten to yet is Best Buy's approach to the practice of consumers' showrooming. What you mentioned in the last answer a little bit, people coming in, browsing around, and then comparing for price on Amazon. So what are some of the ways Best Buy has innovated on their business model in response and, and successfully for them? So as any retailer, Best Buy only made money when you purchased a product. The problem with showrooming is up to a third of the traffic that came into the store would look at the products, would ask for advice from salespeople, and then would uh, pull out their phone and buy it on Amazon or another online retailer because it was cheap. And so what Best Buy needed to do is uh, figure out how to coexist with these two new forces. Force number one was customers showrooming. And force number two is what we call Amazon. <laughs> Obviously, it knew that 
neither of these was going to go away. Amazon is not going away anytime soon, nor our customers' desire to showroom. So what Best Buy needed to do is find a sustainable solution to these, you know, this change in the, the landscape. And what they decided to do is they really needed to make money when people only showroomed. If you just go to the store and look at TVs and buy it online, if you're looking at TVs from Samsung or refrigerators from LG, these companies will get the sale if they have good products online, either through you, the retailer, or not. And so they started saying that we needed to charge the retailers for every time consumers come into our store and see those products. And what, in fact, they did is a common practice in supermarkets, which is instituting what the industry calls slotting fees. Basically, that is a fee, a price that the retailer or the manufacturer pays to the retailer just for putting those products on the shelf. And the reason manufacturers do that is because it is a branding opportunity, a marketing opportunity. Whether you sell the products or not, people get exposed to your new products, your brand, and they might buy it in the store or elsewhere. So what Best Buy decided to do is charge manufacturers for uh, showcasing those products. And this was the first time ever any electronic store in the world actually did that as a business practice. And now Best Buy makes a significant portion of their profits through slotting fees. So really they don't care as much whether you buy it on Best Buy or not because they're making money as long as you come to the store and showroom or buy it. Okay, nice. And and to close things out and to leave folks with a little bit of food for thought as they as they leave this episode, one of the things that you recommend in the book is developing the capacity to see your business through your customers' eyes. What are a few companies whose CEOs were adept at that, and how do you recommend others work to improve that capacity in their organizations or themselves? Ultimately, to see business, see your business through your customers' eyes, you have to be the customer. Brian Chesky, uh, CEO and founder and co-founder of Airbnb, he did a remarkable job in that, in which every time he traveled, he would stay in an Airbnb. Sometimes he would stay in a luxury one. Sometimes he would stay in a low-end one. He would do the booking. He would talk to the, the owners of these properties. He would stay there. He would give the feedback. And that allowed him to really understand the pain points and the challenges of what was going on. When he saw problems in New York City because there were not enough good Airbnbs in the early days, the pictures were pretty bad because people were taking them with their cell phones. He just automatically... Uh, uh, rented high-end digital cameras and started taking pictures for these owners of uh, 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 of apartments in uh, New York City, and that increased the game, the quality of the pictures, and everybody else that wanted to put their properties on Airbnb started doing the same thing. So, you know, you have to be the customer of your own business. Uh, one of my former students, his name is Charles Gora, he created a marketplace of used luxury handbags and there's a website that buys these bags that called Rebag. You have a used handbag, a Gucci, Louis Vuitton. You can just uh, go on uh, uh, Rebag.com. And uh, uh, in, in a matter of a, a few hours, you take a picture and you describe your handbag. And they'll say, we'll buy this product for X dollars, right? So he, he buys products that are, are $10,000, $15,000 uh, luxury handbags. 
And, you know, he's been selling handbags ever since he know, I know him. Um, he's been doing that. He would just, you know, get handbags and buy handbags from his friends and try to sell it on eBay, on Craigslist, everywhere. And then when he built Rebag, he keeps selling handbags on his own website to really understand what is easy, what's hard, what needs to be fixed, what customers care about. So at the end of the day, if you want to see businesses through your customers' eyes, you have to do business with your business as a customer. Yeah, De- develop your mystery shopper capabilities. That's right. Okay, very nice. Uh, well, Talos, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about unlocking the customer value chain. Congratulations on the forthcoming publication of the book. Uh, it's a super interesting read, uh, and uh, I can't recommend it highly enough for, uh, for, for any entrepreneur or business leader out there. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. The Innovation Engine podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the Three Pillar website at threepillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at 3PillarGlobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.